Welcome back to the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. Today we talk about puncture vine. People call it goat heads, but we all know that it gets in our feet, it pops bike tires, and is tough to eradicate. We talk about how to know if watermelons and cantaloupe are ripe, why hawthorn trees should be used more in our landscapes, and a wonderful recipe using fresh local tomatoes, tomato bisque soup. I am back with Utah State University Extension student horticulturist and intern Annie Smith, and we're going to talk about one of the worst weeds out there, puncture vine. The general public might know it a little better as goat head. Its scientific name also means bane of the earth, so that should tell you a little something about it. So why is puncture vine such a problem here in Utah? It has some methods of being really drought tolerant. And so it thrives here and can take over a little better when other plants might be kind of going through it when it gets too hot. So when does it usually start to germinate? It can start as early as March and it starts thriving a little better as it starts to warm up. But it needs wet soil to germinate. But since it has such a deep taproot, it can survive a lot better later into the season than other weeds. So is that why you see it in areas that receive no supplemental irrigation just thriving? I went out to take pictures of it earlier today, and I was in a field where everything else was yellow and brown and dying, and it was still green and fine and happy. So it's kind of a problem. (laughs) So I've noticed also that it has a relatively waxy leaf to it. Which would help it retain water that way too. So when does it really become problematic? It has a mat-like growth pattern, so it starts to spread out. And it can take up to to five feet if it gets going really well. It will take over all of the area around it. And since it has such a deep taproot, it is also a pretty strong competitor for water and nutrients. So it'll kind of strangle the growth of everything that is grown in that same bed. So when do the seed heads usually start to show up? It's usually sometime around July. They need about three weeks to germinate after they've started flowering, but it flowers all season long after it gets going. Usually they start showing up around July, but it can keep producing into the fall. So when you start seeing them, should you just jump for the herbicides? No, the best way to control it actually is to just pull the plant before it has a chance to start producing seeds. So while it's flowering or before it starts flowering is the best way to catch it beforehand. And one kind of wild thing about it is that the seeds can stay viable for five to 10 years. Usually there's been some reports that it can be up to 50 years, which is nuts. Um, So if you let it get out of control one season, you're going to be paying for that for quite a few years. So it's easiest to just go in and yank them out. But there are herbicides you can use if you have bigger areas that you need to take care of. So can you address how mulch can be useful in controlling puncture vine? Its biggest benefit of using mulch is that it smothers the plant growth and it blocks the lights that it'll stop photosynthesizing. It's best to apply mulch about three inches deep over puncture vine to really take care of it. So you'll want to do that before it starts going nuts. If there's mature seeds because they last so long, I imagine that when that mulch starts to break down that they'll just become a problem again. So you need to apply mulch to clean ground. 
One other thing that I would suggest along a little different track is that you, if you are walking around places that have puncture vine, it'd be a really good idea to check your shoes once you leave so that you don't carry the seed heads into your own yard and spread it around. So a situation often occurs to where you buy new property or have fallow ground and there's just puncture vine everywhere, sometimes over you know a couple thousand square feet and hand cultivation may not be practical. And so you would consider an herbicide, something like Roundup or glyphosate or some other ones. When is the best time to actually use an herbicide to kill the puncture vine? So you have a few options. If you move in someplace where um, puncture vine has been a problem in the past, you can start with a pre-emergent herbicide. There's a couple different options there. So just to clarify, would you put the pre-emergent before they germinate or after? Before they germinate, yeah. Pre-emergent means that before it has like sprouted from the ground is the time to apply it. One is isoxibin. That's a lawn pre-emergent. So if you have problems within your lawn, this is the way to take care of it without killing the lawn itself. This one is for broadleaf weeds specifically, so it won't kill your actual lawn. And it's one of the active ingredients in the Bayer season-long broadleaf weed control spray. There's some other isoxibin products that you can find. Another pre-emergent that's pretty good is the Preen pre-emergent. Another name is Triflan. I think that's the name of the yeah, actual that's ingredient. The yeah, um, that one's great for flower beds and gardens as long as you follow the label. Once this has germinated and you've lost your opportunity with the pre-emergent or diminished your opportunity would be a better term, what are some post-emergent uh, herbicide options? So these are for when the plants are already up and causing problems. Something like 2,4-D, dicamba, glyphosate, those will also work. I'm assuming that these products should be sprayed on younger plants that don't have any seeds. Yes, they're, they're especially effective on the younger tissues. Um, you need to be careful about these, though, because they can damage other broadleafs as well. 2,4-D and dicamba can be used on your lawn when it's cooler. They can do some damage when it gets too hot outside. And then something like glyphosate can kill everything, so you need to be extra careful about it, but you can spray it any time of year. Yeah, as long as it's not super windy. Yeah, just be careful to not get any of it on any desirable plants. But again, herbicides should really just be a last resort for puncture vine because hand pulling is the more effective option and you're not going to risk your other plants. This is just for if you're trying to cover a huge area. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate all your hard work and information. Mm-hmm. Utah State University student horticulturist and intern Annie Smith is with me, and we are going to talk about how to tell if cantaloupe and watermelon are ripe. So let's start with watermelon. How do you tell if a watermelon's ripe? My grandpa used to grow watermelons for a living, um, so I grew up listening to different ways to tell if watermelons are ripe. Um, some of the common ones that I grew up with were just the sound when you thump it, depending on if it has a like bright sound or a deeper sound, it, it's ripe or unripe. It kind of depends. For that to work, you have to tap on a lot of watermelons. And yeah, so compare. <laughs> if you've never done that and you're in the grocery store thumping watermelons, you know, you, this is something you probably wanted to grow your own garden or harvested lots of melons to be able to determine. Leave that one to the experts. Um, another one was looking at the contrast between the colors of the different stripes on the watermelon, but some varieties don't have stripes or that might not apply to that 
variety that's in the store. So that's not super reliable. Another one was bee sting marks. And I've been researching that all day, trying to see if there's any validity, because that's the most common one that I grew up with, where the theory behind it is if you see the little brown webbing on the watermelon, it means the bee stung it because it was sweet. That's bogus. Bees do not stink fruit. They will never stink fruit. Honeybees will die if they sting something. It's Don't believe that. Not a good way to tell. But some reliable ways to tell are to check the ground spot. So when the watermelon's growing, it stays in one position. So the part of the fruit that didn't see the light where it was touching the ground will be a lighter color. And the brighter the yellow it is, so even soft yellow to bright yellow, that means that it's ripe and will likely be sweeter. Um, If it's a light green or even a white color, it probably isn't ready. And one thing about watermelons is that they don't continue to ripen once they're off the vine. So if they're picked too early, they won't get any better. So it's important. You got a 20-pound cucumber. Yeah. (laughs) It's important to pick them either from the vine or in the store after you're sure that they were ripe. So it's important to check that ground spot before you do anything with them. So if you're picking them from your garden, how would be another way you would look at making sure they're right. Flip it over, check the ground spot, and then there's a tendril that hooks onto the watermelon the same place as the vine. And once that tendril starts to turn brown or dries up, then you you know your watermelon's good to go. And so where would someone look for that tendril? Right at the top of the watermelon where it connects to the rest of the plant. On the stem end. Yes. And yes. so just follow the stem back an inch or two or maybe three inches and there'll be a, always a tendril. Yeah. Yeah, that's and a good way to tell. it should be dry. Mm-hmm. So in your research and just your experience harvesting watermelons, are there any other reliable ways to tell if they're ripe? Honestly, those two are the ones that consistently came up with like scientific basis, in fact. So those are the two that I would trust. I guess if you have some trick of your own that's been consistently good for you, keep doing it. But those are the two ways that actual horticulturists believe. So let's swap over to cantaloupe. Yeah. Well, one thing about cantaloupe is that unlike watermelon, they will continue to ripen once they're picked. So if you buy one that isn't quite ripe, it's a little more forgiving. If you're harvesting cantaloupes, it's easy to find out which ones are ready to go because the viner stem will slip off or at least come off really easily when you're picking it because the cantaloupe, once it's ready to go, will produce a layer of cells to separate it from the stem. So it'll just detach really easily. And in the store, you can tell that it was detached at the right time because it'll leave a little dish-shaped scar where it was attached to the vine and that will be an indicator that it's ready to go, or at least that it wasn't picked too early. Another way is you can kind of tell by the smell of the cantaloupe if you smell it on the blossom end side. Sometimes It kind of depends, but you can usually smell a sweeter cantaloupe smell that can be a good indicator. But if you're not familiar with that or you don't have a great sense of smell, another way to tell is to look at the contrast of colors between the layer of skin that's kind of the traditional brown webbing color um, and then the layer underneath that's green to yellow. If it's dark green underneath, then it's probably not ripe. And the closer it is to a softer yellow or closer to the top layer's color, it's at least more ripe. So it's better to check the first way 
they'll check by the scarring or if it slips off the vine easily. Well, thank you again for your time and your efforts. We will talk again next week. I'm excited. One of the benefits of autumn approaching is that many plants go on sale at local garden centers and box stores. One of the advantages to this is that many of the trees on sale at garden centers are great trees for your yard, but you may not have heard of them. I want to talk about a group of trees called hawthorns. The Latin name of the genus is Cretagus or Cretagus and they grow to about 20 feet high and wide. And they bloom in the spring with very similar flowers to pears or apples. One of the reasons I really like hawthorn trees is that they are quite drought-hardy once established. This doesn't mean they will survive on zero water, but that they will do fine being deep-watered every few weeks. Another aspect to hawthorns that I really like includes that they are tolerant of all sorts of soils. Whether you have sandy soil or clay soil, as long as the trees aren't drowned to death, they will survive it. So this makes them a useful tree for areas like Harriman, Saratoga Springs, and even out to Eagle Mountain in the south end of the Wasatch Front. And then they're also cold hardy and will grow almost anywhere in Utah where there's population. This would include places like Park City, Heber, Logan, and even Huntsville. A few things that make people cautious about hawthorns include they have thorns and they grow fruit. The thorns are not problematic because the trees stay small enough that it's really hard to actually climb them. So the other strategy with avoiding problems with the thorns is to just plant them in areas where people will not brush up against them. The trees as they grow can also be limbed up to the point that you can walk under them and it's just not a problem. The fruit on them is also what's called persistent. That means the fruit sticks to the tree instead of dropping off. When the fruit does drop off, it's the middle of the winter and it falls into the snow and they're just really not a mass. There are several commonly available species of hawthorn that work well in Utah soils. These include Washington hawthorn, Toba hawthorn, Lavelle's hawthorn, and Russian hawthorn. The only hawthorn species that I generally try to avoid is English hawthorn. It blooms at a time that it is very susceptible to a disease called fire blight and it has very little resistance. Unfortunately, people really like the red blossoms of this particular tree. It's usually sold as Paul's Scarlet Hawthorn. So just because of its disease susceptibility, I avoid it. Otherwise, it would make a great tree. So consider getting past the thorns and the fruit because they really aren't that much of a problem. You'll probably be able to find these trees on discount, and they work well all over the Wasatch Front.
I am back with student horticulturist and intern Annie Smith. She has had an ongoing project of finding inexpensive and easy-to-make recipes using fresh local food. And Annie, what did you make this week? Well, tomatoes are coming on, so I decided to make tomato bisque. Yum. And we had some this afternoon, and I will just let everybody know that it was delicious. And will you take us through the process of actually making this soup, which normally would have used canned tomatoes, uh, making it fresh? Yeah. And that's that's one thing about this is that if you are somebody who doesn't grow tomatoes or you don't have access to them fresh, canned tomatoes will work fine, too. But this is it has pretty easy ingredients, stuff that you'd usually have in your kitchen. So tomatoes, yellow onion, some garlic, celery, butter, butter, Italian seasoning, dried thyme, salt, pepper, brown sugar, Parmesan cheese, heavy cream, and chicken broth. Those are all the ingredients, and usually I just have those on hand. There were two tricky things about this recipe. Mostly you're just cooking the vegetables together, and then you add in the liquids, the cream and the chicken broth, then blend it. But just a couple of tips (laughs) before you try it. Um, When you're cooking the tomatoes initially, you boil them, you blanch them, shock them in cold water. I didn't know this. More expert chefs probably do. Um, When you're boiling your tomatoes, you leave them in the boiling water until the skin cracks and then move them into some water with ice in it to shock it. And then it's really easy to take the skins off. And then later you blend all of the ingredients together once they're kind of cooked and the flavors have distributed evenly. Um, And when you're blending it, don't use an immersion blender. I tried it. It takes way too long. Just put it in a big blender, but be careful because the soup will be hot at that point and you want to be able to like vent the steam a little bit through your blender. Be really careful that it doesn't splash on you because that would be a problem too. I have done that where I completely sealed the blender lid on top and then blended soup and the rush of steam and everything else blew up and I blew soup all over the ceiling over me. So yes, please be careful. Mm -hmm. So when you put all the vegetables together, the celery and the seasonings and the onion and garlic, how long did you cook those in the pan? I, I couldn't tell you a time. I just cooked them until the celery and onion started to soften. So that might vary depending on how hot you're cooking it, but I don't know. It probably took 10 10 minutes. minutes. And then you cut the tomatoes up into large chunks and then put them into the soup? Yeah, I just rough chopped them so that they'd be easier to blend later and so that they could soak up a little bit more of the flavor. And then just throw them in when I was putting in the um, cream cheese. I'm sorry, not cream cheese, the heavy cream and the Parmesan cheese. And that step is when you put them in. And you let it cook for another four or five minutes to melt the cheese and then blended it. Yep. Well, this soup is one that it does, seems like it has a lot of ingredients. It's not horrendous at all, but easy to make. And when I had it, the one thing I really liked about it is that you could have that tomato flavor there, but because my kids are not really tomato fans, there wasn't enough of it that they would be like, oh, that is tomato soup. Yuck. And I think they would eat it and not even realize what they were eating. Yeah. I'm not even a tomato fan and I liked it. And I fed it to my two-year-old nephew 
And he doesn't have a huge vocabulary, but he was able to say more. (laughs) So it's kid tested and approved. So I'd say it's good to feed your kids. That's awesome. So the recipe is tomato bisque soup. And thank you very much. Thank you for listening. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a production of Utah State University Extension. 